Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Let's get started with our conversation with uh, Roger Wolfson. Uh, he was a student of Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, wrote speeches for her. Also Chief Education Counsel for Senator Paul Wellstone. And then on Senator Ted Kennedy's Labor Committee, served on the staff of Senator Joe Lieberman. And he was speechwriter for Senator John Kerry, who became the Secretary of State. Roger, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Roy. Would you explain to us, please, uh, the mood within the Democratic Party, the mood of those on the left of the spectrum in the United States, um, about the election of Donald Trump? What what was the night of November the 8th like for... Democrats and for people on the philosophical left in the United States, and how's it progressed? How's the mood? I don't. I guess progressed isn't the right word, but how has the mood evolved since November the eighth? Well, um, for, first, just let me just correct something. Just there was any misunderstanding. Um, I, yeah, I, I went to University of Pennsylvania Law School at, when Professor Warren was teaching there, but I, I have you know, uh, I, although I do write speeches. I try not to talk about who I write speeches for. I would love to support her in any way, but um, I just want to make that clear to your audience that I'm not involved with uh, with Elizabeth Warren, even though that would be an honor. Understood. Um, but getting back to getting back to your question with Donald Trump, um, yeah, the mood was absolutely despondent. It really was. I, I think that there were a lot of people on the left who didn't think it was really possible. Um, there's a lot of us who really feel as though Trump. Um, is is an unstable person um, for whatever his appeal might be, and the fact that he certainly has captured a wave of hurt and frustration on the part of a lot of Americans and in certain other parts of the world. Um, a lot of liberals don't feel like he's safe, um, and that and, and feel like he a lot of the choices he's made before becoming president and after becoming pres- president do not represent what's best about America. So. The mood was despondent. Um, I myself was in tears. Um, a lot of my friends were in tears. Uh, and I think that the only the way that it has evolved is that it really does look like there's um, a civics lesson, go, lesson going on, not only um, in America, but perhaps even uh, among nations that support us or that work with us. There's a civics lesson going on about how important it is to be involved in politics and how important it is to be engaged and understand what the process is. Yeah. And, and lastly, I think, I think that also the, the amount of protest right now and the amount of dissent in the United States about the Trump presidency, at least for liberals, seems like a heartening, you know, it seems like a very thin cloud, uh, a silver lining on the, on the cloud. So let's move from the streets into the halls of power in Washington. You're very familiar with, with what goes on in the Senate. You're very familiar with what goes on in the Congress, having worked with for very prominent senators. Uh, and, and really, you you worked with uh, Democratic senators on the left, in the center, and on the conservative side 
of being Democrats. So you have a great, uh, complete perspective of what's going on within the Democratic Party. When you look at uh, Senator Schumer of New York tweeting he was sick to his stomach when Senator Jeff Sessions was confirmed as the Attorney General, these are men who co-authored legislation. And uh, as uh, Senator Sessions' confirmation began, there wasn't a senator who didn't profess to liking Senator Sessions personally. Is, is the U.S. Congress, the Senate and the House, in total gridlock now, even more so than we've seen in the past? And, and, and how does that impact on, on the nation as a whole? Well, it's a, it, yeah, the Congress was designed to move a little bit slowly. So um, gridlock, a little bit of gridlock was sort of built into its plan, the idea being that power would be decentralized in America so that no one individual or small group of individuals would have too much power. So a little bit of gridlock is not necessarily to be wept about. Um, but, you know, the under Barack Obama, it really, you know, and having worked in the Senate, the Senate Republicans escalated, I believe, a new level of, of gridlock and a new level of unwillingness to work with the other side. Now, they themselves, I really understand, they were looking back at the times the Democrats can control, and they had their own pet peeves about what they felt were escalations on the Democratic Party. So I really don't think that it's all, all the blame belongs on one side. Um, but I do, you know, having been a, in the Senate and worked with a parliamentarian and having been involved in the process, I have seen a, a huge de-escalation of involvement between the parties. Yeah. Um, no, Roger. I think that right now, I don't know how bad the, the Democrats are going to get. I mean, certainly there's a lot of pressure on the Democrats to be as obstructionist as they think the Republicans were. Um, but the Democratic Party doesn't tend to do that as well. And that's not a value judgment. The Democratic Party tends to be a little bit more diverse and, and have a little bit more disparate views in their tent. The tent seems to be a little bit bigger, and therefore um, it's a little bit harder to corral everybody. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not suggest. I'm not suggesting that uh, that it's just the Democrats who are being obstructionists. The Republicans have just as much skill at that as we saw when Barack Obama was the president of the United States. Um, let me come back to what's going on with the youth. In, in the U.S., on college campuses, we've, we've seen the complaints about safe spaces being compromised. There were um, lots of college students were, were, were openly weeping, and you said you, you shed tears when uh, Donald Trump was elected. There was Play-Doh that was issued to students. I mean, it, it sounds on the surface, frankly, ridiculous. But I'm, I'm sure that if I'm talking to someone who is on the left side of the spectrum, what appears ridiculous to someone on the right, like me, uh, has has meaning and substance, perhaps to you. Am I correct? Well, that, and that's among the reasons why I respect that you invited me on your show, and why I also admire and appreciate your cordiality. I think the only way that the world has any hope is if the you know the Roy Greens and the Roger Wilsons are able to really have uh, an effective conversation where we really share what we have in common not just how we see things differently. So I want to applaud you for inviting me and for talking to me in this gracious way. Well, so, yeah, a, you I, know, I've all, Roger, just so you know something about me, I've often said, and I said it as recently as, 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 recently as yesterday, we're not going to get anywhere. We will get absolutely nowhere if we're not able to speak openly and directly to one another and address the challenges and address the irritations and, and, and take them head on. If we don't do that, the, the chasm will only deepen and widen and become more difficult to cross. Absolutely. 
And I, and I think that, um, and thank you. So in terms of, of Trump, one of the reasons why there were such tears, I mean, you're probably, I, I don't know if you would disagree with me on this, but, you know, Donald, Donald Trump could have run as a Democrat. Um, his, I, I, I don't even know if the people who support him on the far right really care um, that, you know, he's held very liberal views in the past and he's donated just as much money to Democrats over the years as Republicans. Um, I think they're, they're glad, they appear to be very glad that he's on their side now, and he certainly seems to be staying steadily on the far right. And so I, you know, I'm, I understand. I understand the excitement on the far right. They've got a real, a radical type of a candidate, and radical not in a, not in a political sense, but radical in this is a very innovative character, a very um, charismatic character, a very unusual and polarizing figure, and that can be kind of exciting. The feeling among the Democrats is, had he, we feel, and I don't, there's no way to know if we're 100% right or whether we're being self-righteous in saying so, but we feel that if Donald Trump had run as a Democrat, we would have rejected him. That no matter what, even if he won, we would still be opposing him right now because we as Democrats feel like we're, we're um, I'll just speak for myself. I feel like a patriot. I feel like I love this country. I feel like I want a, a president who is qualified, who has an even temperament who doesn't uh, shoot it from the hip, who thinks things through. Um, I, too, have concerns about our security and our safety. I think every American does, and certainly our neighbors do. But I think that the ways to address it um, are radically different than the way that Donald Trump has chosen to do so. So I feel, as a Democrat, that it's upsetting to me that, the, the, that my conservative brethren, many of my close friends, um, aren't more loudly condemning Donald Trump for his temperament for um, his racist statements, for his um, sexist statements, um, for his um, uneven and erratic behavior. You know, so um, at, the, at the very least, the Republicans who I tend to admire the most right now are those who say, you know something, I'm glad that we have a, a, a right-wing president because those are what my views are, but there's no way that I can ever make a plausible argument that Donald Trump is fit to be president. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Roger Wolfson is with me, at Roger.Wolfson on Twitter, at Roger.Wolfson, W-O-L-F-S-O-N. He has worked with um, senators, uh, Democratic senators in the United States, Ted Kennedy and uh, uh, John Kerry among them, and uh, is a writer and consulting producer for USA Network's Fairly Legal and has written for NBC's Law and Order SVU, as well as Saving Grace and the Closure on uh, TNT. And we're talking about life on the left in the United States now with the presence of Donald Trump in the White House. Roger, we were you and I were just talking off the air, and and I said to you that from my perspective, I look at the United States now, and it's becoming, if it hasn't already become, a dysfunctional society, and that worries me tremendously because I've been a huge fan of the United States and what the United States has done for the world for a, for a long period of time. And you said something to me about why this is going on. Please share that with my listeners. Absolutely. And by the way, I, I gave you my proper Twitter account. It's Roger underscore Wolfson. So forgive me for that. No, no. And that... I and I want to thank you for being a fan of, of, of America. Um, I, too, am a fan of America and a, and a deep fan of, of, of Canada. Um, and my best friend actually lives in Montreal. His name is Munir Bashor. Um, and I, and I, you know, I, 
I think that America, at its best, is a melting pot um, with tremendous moral leadership and tremendous, a tremendous sense of freedom. And I think that's how we, who we are at our best. Um, at our worst, I think that we are a bunch of <laughs> like, a, like a, a huge, overly large, neurotic family with deep-held resentments and frustrations that aren't very often expressed in a healthy way. Um, so my feeling is that you know, the, the reason that, w- that we ended up with Donald Trump as president is a mixture of things. Um, on the negative side of, of, of the mixture is I think that a, a lot of Americans who haven't totally come to terms with or made peace with their own latent racism. And I'm not calling all Americans racist, and I'm not saying that everybody um, is bad or that this is the entire motivation, but I do think that the election and the, the relatively successful presidency of, of somebody who's of African-American, who's African-American um, kind of triggered um, some really deep-seated frustrations. And I'm not entirely sure whether Barack Obama or whether Hillary Clinton necessarily spoke to those frustrations in a way to solve them or soothe them or address them. And I think what then ended up happening is um, there was anger and frustration and a sense that, you know, America is losing its status as the world leader in some ways. And China and India are catching up on us. And things are going well for certain nations abroad, although they might be going poorly for others. And the end result is that people needed to vent their frustrations. They needed to feel like there was an outside-the-box miraculous solution. And Donald Trump, to a lot of people, felt like that. Like maybe he's that guy. Now, Roger, um, what, what I said yeah. to you off the air was, but it took a tremendous number of white Americans to vote for Barack Obama, to assure him the presidency in 2008, and to continue with his presidency in 2012. Absolutely, and I think that that's just an example of uh, of a cult- that, that a culture is very similar to a person. You know, um, you and I right now are speaking cordially and respectfully, and uh, hopefully, I-, I can certainly say on my side with admiration um, for you. Thank you. Well, but I, but it, 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 it's entirely possible that if we met under different circumstances, the exact same two people, if we if our temperatures were up and it was right before Election Day, and we both felt very strongly, and we were in the same country, and that you and I could have a terrible interaction. And I think that that's part of what a, what a country's like. Sometimes America responds to what I would consider to be its better angels and decides, you know, let's put somebody in the White House um, who, who um, is of a, you know, from a culture, meaning the African-American community, that has been historically in America treated poorly, Let's do that and feel good about it. And then it's possible the next day or a week later or four years later, I might feel totally differently. I might be in an angry place or I might be um, – and I, I don't want to attribute a vote for Trump as purely an angry vote. So for some people, it was a hopeful vote. Um, but they get to feel differently about things. You know, and that is part of a, that's also part of the melting pot. But when you look at the, what the Democrats offered the American voter uh, as an alternative to Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, she was not admired, isn't liked. Uh, there was very little believability. Uh, there was just no great appetite for Hillary Clinton. And so 
I'm going to suggest to you that there are many Americans, not just um, uh, not just white Americans, who looked at the Clintons, understand the legacy, heard about the uh, Clinton Foundation and the concerns that exist there, and decided that they could not vote for Hillary Clinton. Now, had Bernie Sanders been the Democratic presidential candidate, I have a sense that this may have turned out very differently because those swing states, they may still have gone for Donald Trump, but there would have been a greater chance that they might have gone for Bernie Sanders. So the, so the Democrats didn't offer the Democrats didn't offer the Republican voter or the American voter a really significantly uh, positive improvement uh, in, in choice for who would sit in the in the Oval Office. I, I, I think that's a very good point. Um, I don't agree with all of it, um, simply because I, I, I do want to look at the numbers. Hillary Clinton did win almost three million votes more than Trump, so more Americans wanted her to be president and voted for that. And I also look at the letter that James Comey sent 11 days before the election that, that really cost Hillary Clinton the election. If that letter hadn't gone out, she would have been president. I wonder about um, that. I, I wonder about that. And, and, Roger, when you look at those three million extra votes... Those were in essentially in, uh, in in states where they have a significantly large population mass, and the majority of the population are Democrat supporters. California, New York, being two of the examples. I think there's a third one. Was it Oregon or, or state of Washington? I can't remember which one. I'm, I'm not sure, but you know, we also can't really do that. I mean, we're either in America or we're not. You know, I mean, you could say, well, you know, in, in certain states like Texas or in all the red states. There was a disproportionate number of people who voted for Donald Trump. You know that's that's what happened. But you if know? those so if those I, three I million if those three million extra votes are located in let's say California, New York, and one other, that in a way negates the argument of the of the majority vote. Our prime minister in Canada, uh, Justin Trudeau, was uh, they, there were more Canadians who voted against him than voted for him, but he still is the prime minister. And you know that's part of the that's part of your system. Um, and the Electoral College is part of ours. Right. I personally think that, you know, I don't t- entirely agree with it, but I, I don't think that you can pick and choose your voters. Um, I don't think you can even say that it's three million more voters were necessarily in California. You could say that California is just going to vote the way California did and that those three million votes came from the red states. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, it, to me, that, doesn't, that map doesn't really add up. But I want, I want to just get to your inherent point, which is I do agree with you that, I, that Hillary Clinton was it was not an ideal candidate, but she was certainly a more qualified candidate than Donald Trump. She certainly had more relevant experience. She certainly had more demonstrated familiarity with the issues. What she did, I do believe, fail to do was connect to blue-collar white voters in this country on the same level that Donald Trump was able to, and that did contribute to her loss. Um, I, I, I think she would have won had James Comey not written that letter. But I also think, would have liked her margin of victory to be even larger. And I think it could have been larger if she had more sensitivity to that. And it was very frustrating to me as a Democrat. And it was very frustrating to other Democrats. And, you know, it, 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 it's hard. Roger, I have about a minute and a half left. Let me ask you about Hollywood. Matthew sure. McConaughey uh, said it's time to respect the president. He caught hell. John Voight is a Donald Trump supporter, as is Mel Gibson, and a handful of other recognizable names from the movies and television. That's an area that you're very familiar with. Is it professional suicide in the entertainment industry to support uh, Donald Trump? And is the support of the constant, um, unwavering majority support of Democrats and the ridiculing of Donald Trump, 
uh, by the entertainment industry, isn't that going to run, if it hasn't already, the risk of alienating people on the fence who just don't want to be constantly reminded at self-congratulatory award ceremonies that the people in the room don't, don't like the president? Well, I, I, it's a good point, and I do think that it's not very popular in Hollywood right now to say that you voted for Trump. I think that um, Hollywood tends to be more on the left side. But I also, you know, I, when I wrote for the TV show Saving Grace, which starred Holly Hunter, um, the, my, my boss was a woman um, named Nancy Miller, who's from Oklahoma, who's a proud Trump supporter. And she and I love each other very much. We have some pretty heated debates from time to time. But there are Republicans out here, and they do speak with an open mind, and they do get heard. Um, I think that you know these award ceremonies and in, in taking bites at Trump, I don't think that that's coming from a partisan place. I think they're speaking to his policies, and policies that maybe some of your listeners might on some level agree to. Like I don't think that if Trump was talking about building a wall between Canada and America, that Canadians would be happy about that, or they would think it was secure or smart. So I think a lot of the dissent against Trump isn't necessarily, oh, you, you stinking Republicans, how dare you do that? It's how can you support somebody who doesn't seem to have any respect for civil rights and human rights, who really seems so volatile and who says such inflammatory things when he's sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office? All right. Roger, I hope you'll come back on the show. I'd love to. Good. Well, we'll call you again. It's at Roger underscore Wolfson on Twitter, right? At Roger underscore Wolfson, W-O-L-F-S-O-N. And we will call you again, gotcha. Roger. Thanks Thanks so much for the time. You have a lovely day. You too. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This is one of the, um, one of the really disturbing and troubling days. I've talked to so many, I've talked to so many people over the years who lost their kids to, to criminal acts, to acts of violence. And each every one of the parents, each and every one of the people I spoke with, who went on the air afterwards, were doing it with the sole intent of trying to create an environment where other parents would not encounter and suffer what they have encountered and suffered. And so it is with Carol Dedelli the mother of Tim McLean. You've heard Carol many times on this program over the years since she lost her son to Vincent Lee, and you know the what took uh, place on that bus, and I'm not going to repeat it. But, um, Carol, I, you and I spoke at length off-air on Thursday. Yes. When I, when I heard yesterday that um and, and it's and it's good to talk to you uh, let me let me start by thanking you for coming on the show and talking to the people of this country thank you thanks for the opportunity when 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 i read about and heard about the absolute discharge by the criminal code review board of vincent lee slash will baker it was a sick feeling in my stomach i was i knew it was coming but it's, it's a sick feeling in your stomach when it happens. I can't imagine the impact on you and your family when that was finally announced and he's free to go and do whatever he wishes, wherever he wishes, with no record to follow him. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty hard blow to take. Um, that he has that opportunity is disturbing to me, that he is 
has the right to be unmedicated. Um, the treatment team and psychiatrist all say that he he understands and he promises to take his medication and and that's good enough for them. It's not good enough for me, not not in the little tiniest bit. Uh, he's proven himself to be non-compliant with medication before. It's indicative of the illness. It's a lifelong illness that's incurable. Um, I don't think the decision to medicate or not medicate his illness is a decision that should be his to make anymore. So no question in your mind that he remains a dangerous human being. I think he has the potentially I think he has the potential to be the most dangerous person. He's proven that already. Yes, he has. And so why would I believe differently, especially when past predictor is the best past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. But in the end, if he does reoffend, um, nobody will ha- be held accountable yet again. It'll be NCR again. It will, and it'll be a case of, well, we, and we thought he was a manageable risk. Those are the two words they like to use, the system likes to use, manageable risk. And they'll that, trot out... That- yes, that and the fact that they cannot predict the future behavior of any individual. No, they can't. And if he goes off his meds... We know what he can do. We know what he can do, because he's already and, done it. And it has been stated, too, that he could suffer a relapse even while medicated. And oftentimes the medications need to be changed, and, and you know, different concoctions or different levels of it need to be... The illness doesn't stay the same, I guess, over, over time. Um, how's that going to happen if he's not being monitored and he doesn't have to check in anywhere and... You know, they're, they're, they're putting an awful lot of faith in, in he just, he agrees to do it. What do you say to people who argue, I've heard this and you've heard it many times, what do you say to people who will argue, well, it's, it's not Vincent Lee, it's the schizophrenia. You can't blame him. It was his mental health that created... We're not blaming him by making him medicate his illness when it affects other people. It changes who he is. He's not a meek, mild, well-mannered, very polite, um, small individual when he's not medicated. Then he's a very different person. What do people expect of you? I'm not sure. Um, I get a lot of messages. Everybody wants to be my friend, and I get a lot of messages. I think people expect to be able to inform me of their situation and their opinions and that I can then take it the step forward and, and do something with that. And I, I think I've done everything that I could do to the best of my ability with some research and some uh, support, but I think it's, in, it's incumbent on every individual to address this with their local elected official. I'm just one voice. I'm just one voice uh, reflecting my displeasure. I speak, or I believe I speak, for a lot of not criminally responsible victims' families. But as an everyday Canadian, you don't have to have been through the NCR system to learn about it, understand it, and make an educated decision on whether you agree with this or you don't. I'm simply saying if this individual, and they've already got him living amongst us, if he's to be living amongst us, it's in our safety best interest in public if public safety is paramount like they 
want us to believe it is, then why should he ever be free without mandatory medication? We need that legal mechanism requiring him to treat his illness. It's all, to me, it's all very simple. If I had my way, he'd be staying in an institution that could ensure that he's taking that medicine and getting the treatment. He, he's been living in a controlled environment. He's only he's been out in the public for the last couple of years, halfway house, that kind of thing, and only uh, in November he moved to his own apartment. And my understanding is that on a daily basis, somebody from mental health would go to his home and observe him take his medication. If he's going to live amongst us, that's the very least that should be happening. But he's released. No conditions. No conditions. He's free as a bird. No record. Can cross borders. I, they state that he wants to travel to China with his ex-wife, um, that he wants to take some upgrading uh, for his education. I predict that he'll stay in the province for two or three years, like they've stated, to get that education, and then he'll move to another province. And that when he crosses those lines, this diagnosis the whole none of the situation follows him anyway and by then he may have changed his name yet again could be yep now what about the code itself the uh, the ncr code uh, the, the review board's responsibilities the code says something about they have to find the least onerous part of the uh, the accused who of course just like correctional service canada is not an accused not an offender is designated as a client yeah not even a patient now he's he's under the uh healthcare system, not, not the legal system. He's under the healthcare system. And he's not even referred to as a patient anymore. Now he's a client. From, from what, what were the original first headliners, headlines in the papers, you know, crazed killer, cannibalistic murder, whatever. Now he's a client. Are they funding him? Does he get, uh, do you know if he gets money? Is he getting... Uh... Well, he must. He's, how else could he be in his own apartment? and getting his medications, and how much are those medications, how much is this apartment. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sickened at the fact that we're paying for all of that. Because times have not been easy for you. No, uh, not at all. And there is a GoFundMe page that was started by a reporter who did a story for you, or on you. Yes. And it's uh, go to GoFundMe.com, and it's uh, Tim McLean family. And uh, just this is this is for Carol supporting Carol and and her family. There are some notifications there that uh, I, I don't know why people find it necessary to write negative things on a GoFundMe page. That's not what it's about. But if you feel like you would like to provide some support to Carol, uh, to Delia and her family, it's GoFundMe.com. Tim McLean family. That's M C L E A N. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Carol, uh, wasn't Lee in the same institution as Luca Magnata? And, and why is there one set of rules for Luca Magnata and another set of rules for Vincent Lee? I'm not suggesting Luca, Magnata should be released, but what he did um, arguably was would be qualify, uh, would be a qualifier for NCR. Well, they've, they've never been in the same institution. They haven't. Oh, I thought they had no, been. No, we're confusing the uh, two different ones. But Luca Magnata was found guilty of murder. And right. You're going to tell me that he didn't have mental health issues? Not, again, I, I think he's where he needs to be. I think that there needs to be a separate institution for killers like Luca Magnata and Vince Lee who have extremely severe mental illness and need treatment. 
but they shouldn't have to be getting that at an institution that is designed to help the everyday person who has never committed a crime to get help for their mental health issues. Yeah, well, Magnata's modus operandus was quite similar to Vincent Lee's, but Magnata gets a, you know, a first-degree murder conviction, but mm-hmm. Vincent Lee is NCR. It was the uh, Quebec cardiologist that was in the same uh, place as Luca Magnata. Okay. Okay. And then they retried him, and he was found, the cardiologist was found guilty of secondary second murder on, two, on his two children, small right. children. Right. That's just a horrifying case as well. That's terrible. I mean, they knew. Yeah. And clearly the courts later on agreed. This, this cardiologist should never, ever, ever have been designated NCR. And what that speaks to is that they make significant errors, and they designate people NCR who the courts later say no. No, and then the courts later find guilty of murder. Well, uh, one a piece of advice I would give anybody who's entering into this nightmare, as soon as you hear the words NCR or, or agreed statement of facts, right then and there say, uh-uh, no way, make them prove he's crazy. Make them prove that he is so severely mentally ill. Because in an agreed statement of facts, there's a lot of issues, a lot of facts that are never discussed, never talked about. They don't come out before a trial. They don't come out before a jury. Is this what happened to you? Oh, for sure. Vince Lee was jumping on buses for two years uh, before he actually committed this murder. He bought and concealed his weapons. He bought his bus ticket under an assumed name. Yeah. Uh, these all pointed things that uh, this person knew he was going to do. Something. Well, it, there are stories that uh, Vincent Lee had been taking bus trips for a couple of years. Now, either he's a great aficionado of riding the bus or something else was going on. Oh, exactly. And, and at the same time, he was displaying odd behavior. And um, from 2003, he, he was displaying erratic behavior and doing these bus runs and different other, you know, things. He, he was a late starter in school, didn't start school till he was eight or nine years old, always a, a little bit off. Um, none of this comes out when there's an agreed statement of facts. They just It's just a given. So now we're going to deal with him as a not responsible person. But he was responsible enough to get an education and live his first, first 40 years of life without taking a life. How was your victim's impact statement treated? I didn't submit one this year. The ones that I have submitted have been so censored as to not really re- reflect what I wanted to say in the first place. Um, we can't say anything that will offend the offender. We can't say anything that will offend the system, the judges, the lawyers, the first responders, the police, or how the situation was handled. So, uh, and, and how the, do they define offending the offender? Is that a, or is that a moving target? Um, well, I don't know. Any, anything that I would say that that would be negative towards him would be, would be offensive towards him. So anything that would anything that could upset Vincent Lee that you would put in your victim's impact statement that it was traumatic to you but and and he would deem to be offensive you have to make the change not him. That's right. That's right. So I stopped submitting impact statements once I saw what was actually able to be seen or read in court it uh, or at the review board cuz let's call it what it is. The review board people tend to think that this crime is reviewed every year and that there's a possibility that they're going to do something different with Vince Lee. Well, no, it isn't a, a legal review board. It, is a, it doesn't review the case whatsoever. It 
simply reviews Vince Lee's mental status. And nobody is going to be around to check to see if Vincent Lee takes his medication. Nobody. No, he d- he's not legally required to take it. The system and the individuals involved working with him, and, and, and I'd like to mention here too, he does not have a support system here other than his treatment team. He doesn't have family here. His, wife, his ex-wife doesn't even live here, although they've maintained a close relationship, however close that can be when you live in different provinces. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm afraid for having him walking around free in the public. I think that, that there was genuine concern and that I do believe he is, has the potential to be an extremely dangerous person. Why would I think differently? He, Why would he, you? Why would any of us? He, he brutally murdered my son in a confined space in a very public place right. and consumed parts of him. Of course I think he's dangerous. Of course I think he needs to be treated. But he's not required to treat himself. No, and you're the one who had to uh, adjust to their satisfaction your victim's impact statement, which they censored, the system censored, to satisfy Mr. Lee's um, feelings. Right. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. If people want to um, really want to have a sense of what it is, what your message is, and they can do it very privately and very quietly on their own. If they go to youtube.com, they can see, you know, enter your name, Carol Dedelli, and they'll see your testament, uh, testimony rather, to the Senate. And then there's another piece, Aftermath of Murder, that they can also uh, watch and, 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 and understand better about how you and your family are feeling today. Yeah. And what you went through with, with governments. I think those are the best places to get the information that I'm trying to relay, and it would be easier on me if they did that instead of contacting me individually and asking me to relay it all um, to each person. Yeah. How were you? How were you treated by uh, by governments? By how were you treated by politicians? I think tolerated, but barely. I'm an irritant, like you said. Um, I think they all just wished I would just shut up and go away. Um, but I'm not about to do that. Uh, I, I feel so strongly about this, and it, it's not about it's not about Timothy. It's not about Vince Lee. It's about how we in this country deal with those that we deem not criminally responsible for murder, and I think it's wrong. I don't think that he should be released with no conditions, with no requirement to take his medication. Um, And I think that needs to change. So I tried. I tried to make people aware of this for nine years, and it's only now that people are shocked and horrified because it's on their threshold now. He's crossed that threshold. He's out. He's free to be anywhere he wants to be at any time. So he could be in your neighborhood. He could be be anywhere. And uh, accountability and transparency are not strong suits of the system. (laughs) No, not at all. And there needs to be. Um, People think that we're against helping the mentally ill. Absolutely not. But we do believe that a great deal more funding programs and professionals need to be available at the front end of mental health care. Um, People, friends, family, and associates of extremely ill individuals need to be heard, 
taken seriously and helped when they're seeking help for the afflicted individual. Um, Margaret Trudeau in her book stated that what mentally ill people need above all is an advocate to act for them when they're incapable of acting and and making decisions for themselves. I think that's very true. And I think in, in instances like this, the state must step in and assume responsibility for those found not criminally responsible and make them responsible to take, legally responsible to take their medication. The system looks after itself. Oh, yes. The system, ultimately, the system doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about your son. And I suppose it uh, doesn't really care about Vincent Lee because they'd like, they'd like him to be off the public radar as well so mm-hmm. that they're not questioned. Right. I, 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 I often wonder now if we'll ever know, if he ever reoffends, if we'll ever know. I doubt it. Unless, of course, he does it again on a, on a bus in a public place to a very random individual again. Uh, then I guess we'll know, or will they hide that identity? You know, it's interesting that you uh, interesting that you say this, because I had the very same thought earlier. I, I, I just wondered, and this is how suspicious we've become, and I think with, with reason of the system, we ask ourselves, if he were to commit a crime, and if there's opportunity for the crime to not be not go public, to be somehow squirreled away, hidden away, would they go ahead and do that? I have no doubt. I honestly have no doubt. The judge that, uh, the judge in the trial passed away years ago already. Nobody can go back and ask him anything. He had cancer. What do you do now, Carol? How, how do you proceed with life? What, do you, what are you going to do? one day at a time, the best that I can uh, to take care of me, my family, and my community, which is what I've always tried to do. And uh, I'm, I'm upset that in this, I failed. I, I did not achieve what I was hoping for. Vince Lee is not going to be uh, legally obligated to take his medication. I hope that that does come for come about sometime in the future for future victims. I mean, keep in mind, even if I if I had achieved that, it wouldn't have brought my son back. It wouldn't have changed anything in our circumstance, but to prevent the same type of crime happening by the same individual. The first killing will already have happened, but if we legally require him now upon release to treat his illness, maybe we can avoid a second killing by the same individual, because it does happen. And if it's such a low rate of it happening, I don't see how building a a separate facility should be a problem then. The question then becomes, how much is a life worth? Yeah. Well, apparently, Timothy's wasn't worth much, was it? Not to the system. Nope. Haven't seen pictures of Timothy in the paper this week. No. You haven't. Nope. You didn't. You didn't fail, though, Carol. The system failed you. 
our system, our the healthcare system, the the, the judicial, the, the justice system, which is neither justice nor a system. At uh, many on on many an occasion, this being another glaring example, failed you and failed your son, and that's the opinion I would I would I would venture of a significant majority of people in this country. Certainly, the people who've been in touch with me after. Uh, after I was well, tweeting about you, the support for you and the care and concern for you is very deep and very strong. I, I did the best I could. I worked with the Federal Ombudsman for Victims and helped it in the creation of the Victims' Bill of Rights in Canada. Um, I did change some legislation regarding NCR, not what I wanted, but um, I did make some change. And... I did the best that I could do. You're right. I don't, I don't think that there will ever be a time that I will be satisfied that my country did what it should have done in the death of my son. You're a great mom, and you're a great person, and it's a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time today, and very, very concerned about, about what took place, and again, condolences on the loss of your son. Thanks, Roy. We'll stay in touch. Thank you, Carol. You bet. Bye. Bye-bye. Carol Dedelli. Uh, 1-800-263-2428. 1-800-263-2428. Should Vince Lee, Will Baker, be free? today. Should Vince Lee, Will Baker have been granted an absolute discharge? 1-800-263-2428. You've communicated uh, on Twitter. You've communicated by email. You've communicated on Facebook. You've communicated, communicated on social media. I want to hear your voices. So, uh, 1-800-263-2428. Give me a call. Should Vincent Lee today be free as he is? No responsibilities. No limitations. No um, demands that he take his medication. Nothing. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I don't know why you think that you can, you know, I love it when you guys call and we got a little challenge going now and then, but it's it's always amazing to me that that you think you're going to get a rise out of me if you call me a conservative. I'm the first to admit it. I mean, I try, I try, to, I try to get that point across every time I turn on the microphone. Oh, there's that dog again. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Jeez. Woof, 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 woof. Daughter is a trainer, too, so. Huh? You might as well bring the dog in and put it on the air, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, rough, rough, rough to you, too. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Swift's rescue, and we're so proud of you for getting the rescue dog. Oh, I've had, I've had so many. I've, the only animals I've ever had in my life have been rescues. And this one, I must say, <laughs> she's a bigger <laughs> challenge than anyone to date. Anyway. So it turns, out, it, turns out, it turns out the animal rescues us, right? 
Yeah, well, there's that too. <laughs> and there's the and 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 the other partner in broadcast crime. Uh, I mean that very loosely. Please don't send me emails. As uh, is Michelle Simpson at Michelle Simpson on uh, Twitter, former Liberal member of Parliament for Scarborough Southwest and former seatmate to the Prime Minister of Canada, who on Monday will be meeting with the President of the United States. We had some interesting phone calls on that in the last half hour. Hi, Michelle. Good afternoon, Roy. How are things in California? A little cool today. Oh, I come think, on. Uh, <laughs> cool is well California. For California. But. So we understand that you and uh, the truant Linda Leatherdale got together for a little socializing in California. On Monday evening, absolutely. She was in town, and we'd only met face-to-face once before. Right. And it was when we got the Jubilee Award. And so we had a real hoot. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. (laughs) Uh, And and you and I have never met face-to-face. No, but we're going to remedy that this when I get back. I understand that's to be the case that we will all get together for lunch. Hey, beauties, uh, Michelle and Catherine. So we have the we've got a few things to talk about today, and why don't we just pick up where we left off before the half hour break, and that is the visit to Washington by Prime Minister Trudeau to meet with President Trump. The last time the Prime Minister was in Washington, he met with the uh, Center for American Progress think tank that has awful things to say about the oil sands, which we know need to be phased out. Um, what what do you expect? What's the best case? I'll, hold, I'll ask you to just hold your thoughts in advance, Michelle. What's the best and worst case scenario that comes out of these things? Catherine, what, what is like, how important is a face-to-face between Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump in the, in the big picture? Well, for Canada, I think it's darn important. Uh, you know, I was just looking up some stats to update myself recently, and just under a quarter of our gross domestic product, our overall economy, is dependent on trade with the U.S. And there's been a bit that whenever I read, uh, you know, ministers or Trudeau or anybody else saying, oh, well, we have this interdependent relationship. Yeah, I'm not saying it, it's non-existent. But do you know what the proportion of the American economy that depends on trade with Canada is? Less than 2%. So <laughs> the old analogy which Trudeau's father brought up, of the, you know, the elephant and the mouse, uh, and the, you know, the elephant rolls over and the mouse is toast, uh, it's it's extremely extremely important for Canada, yeah. less so for the U.S. because we're not the biggest player in the world, not in not insignificant completely, but not by any means the biggest player. So the worst case scenario, I guess, the, the best case is that um, we the U.S. sees Canada not as an enemy, but at least as a fairly benign um, ally and partner, which is frankly the way the U.S. usually sees Canada. <laughs> Not as not as a huge uh, threat or benefit, but at least not as a you know not as a problem. The worst can be if if and and I, I see these uh, polls saying that you know a good chunk of Canadians want Trump or sorry want Trudeau to to stand up to Trump and all this. What what the heck is that all about? It it doesn't make sense to me. If Trudeau goes down and tries to scold, as we have seen him try to do on occasion, is try to you know, be the taskmaster and naughty, naughty, um, that's, that to me means very bad news for Canada. They've talked about things like import taxes and whatnot. That would kill us. That yeah. would really
really hurt our economy right. badly at a time when it's not super strong anyway. Michelle, what about uh, what about Mr. Trudeau's statement right after the executive action and passed the travel ban um, that the Canada would welcome refugees that can't get into the United States? You know Justin Trudeau quite well. Donald Trump's not the kind of person to let something like that slide. We know that from his conversation with Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia. What's likely to develop? Is, is Trudeau going to bring that up? or and, and Is he equipped to battle back if Donald Trump decides to take him on the way he took on Turnbull? Oh, I, I don't think he should try to battle back. I think primarily, Roy, the challenge will be for him to hold his tongue because he does have a bit of a temper, and he, he can't let that get the better of him. He has to appear uh, diplomatic, uh, not wishy-washy, firm, but not overly firm. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be my hope, because he's, he's going to be underestimated by Trump. Trump's already referred to him as the president of Canada. The worst president. The, the worst president. <laughs> and I think he's going to view him as kind of the the boy in short pants. I think I think he's going to tend to be dismissive. And as long as that doesn't get the better of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, we should be okay. Well, he is the worst president Canada's ever had. Yes. Well, yeah, that's true. And the best. <laughs> That's very true. Um, let me move on. I just want to get a couple of issues on the air, and then we can get back to whatever we wish. The uh, the Ninth Circuit, because we talked about the, or I did, the executive action, the, the travel ban. So the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal in California, where Michelle is, upheld the, uh, the temporary restraining order on Donald Trump's executive action travel ban. But that court, I was doing quite a bit of reading about the, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, they've had 84% of their decisions overturned by the Supreme Court of the United States. That talks, that speaks about a, a highly ineffective, uh, highly um, um, philosophically uh, one-minded court when 84% of your decisions are overturned. That's huge, isn't it? Ms. Swift? Absolutely massive. Yeah, 84%. And and again, though we're we're not you know we're not at the end game yet of this whole thing. It's just another you know another step in the seemingly never-ending legal process. Oh, I know. So yeah, no, it's it's uh, they're they're not a no, they're not a terribly credible uh, entity. Let's face it. What about Michelle? What's being said in California about the decision by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal? I would imagine that they, it's being uh, it's being received with a, a lot of cheering. Oh yes, uh, the governor wants to declare the state a sacrifice or, or a, um, sanctuary sanctuary, sanctuary yeah. state to which donald uh, donald trump said if you do that he's threatening to defund the entire state from federal funding and how strong so, is that movement that we keep hearing about the secessionist movement in california well, I think it's gathering ahead of steam because they they really find this quite arbitrary, and they have you know they do have a lot of immigration, particularly from Mexico, and 
they rely on that, you know, for a lot of their farm workers, for their tourism, you know, and um, I th- I think that this could really become a challenge no. for Mr. Trump. Not not a, not a, not a referendum in California, because then Quebec's going to want to join up with California. <laughs> they already f- have them. There. I know, know I know. They got cap and trade. <laughs> so then well, you'd have you, you, you'd have just, you'd have Quebec California. Well, in, <laughs> don't say that. In California, too bad. they're used to referendums. Like on every ballot, their ballots are the size of uh, you know when uh, when they go for an election, right? The size of a of a billboard. Because they get to vote on all the tax changes. Right. Hallelujah to that, I say. I'd say so, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need more of that in uh, the Great White North. (laughs) So when the the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal decided the way it did, that the TRO would stand on Trump's EA on on travel, uh, Hillary Clinton decided to get into the act and tweeted 3-0, because three courts, right? 3-0, or three judges, 3-0. And then Kellyanne Conway decided that she would follow Mr. Trump's advisor, and she wrote W-I-P-A-M-I. That was it. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. So that was a pretty good comeback. Yeah. Pretty inventive. Clever, I thought. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.